Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or on the Times Radio app. But every day on the podcast, we bring you our columnist panel and the big thing. The big thing today, we're taking a look at the politics of Scotland. If Keir Starmer's got any hope of becoming Prime Minister, the path to number 10 runs through Scotland. We'll take a look at the polling. We'll revisit our focus group. And we're joined by the Scottish Labour leader, Anna Sawa, to see how he thinks things are going. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, as ever, it's time for The Economist's. The Columnists with Libby Rachie, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio. And we say hello to Libby. Hello, Libby. Hello. And we say hello to Rachel. Hi, Matt. Now, Rachel, where are you in the world? Well, I am in an ambulance station. So if a siren suddenly goes off, uh, then I will. it may disrupt the call. But um, I'm about to go out on a 12-hour shift with some, two paramedics in an ambulance which I think is going to be absolutely fascinating for the Health Commission to see what it's like uh, and to learn how, what, what, what can, what, how they operate. Are you going to be allowed to t- turn, the, turn the sirens on? I don't know. I'll ask. Probably <laughs> not. I think I'm an observer status yes, only. Very, very much so, very much. <laughs> Have you been told, given any sense of what to expect? No, that's the point. It's absolutely random. We have no idea. I probably go out on five or six calls, but they could be anything from, you know, minor, major. I'm in Homerton in East London. Um, So, in fact, that's quite near where I live, where there's quite a lot of sort of knife crime, could be uh, traffic accidents, or it could be uh, domestic violence, could be absolutely anything. That's the the fascination of the thing, I think. Well, we'll check in with you. Uh next week uh, um, to, to find out uh, how you get on. Well, in fact, um, it's not just you talking about health today. Uh, Keir Starmer has been making a speech on the third of his five pillars. Uh, here he is talking about the NHS this morning. Illness is neither an indulgence for which people have to pay nor an offence for which they should be penalised. That's what we believe, and it's under threat. I mean it. I don't think the NHS survives five more years of Tory government. And people say, oh, well, we've heard this before. The Labour Party is always saying it's time to save the NHS. But I say, look squarely in the eyes of the people who work in the NHS, who serve the NHS, and ask them. Speak to the working people who use the NHS, who depend on the NHS, who need the NHS. What do they say? So... Uh, this is his uh, five pillars. He says he wants to so- focus on suicide prevention, uh, amongst, and also just setting lots of NHS targets, which he said he'd meet in his first term. Um, Rachel, are these the right priorities? I know the Times Health Commission is ongoing, but is he is he in the right areas? The thing I think he's saying that's good is that you've got to shift away from hospitals to prevention, to community care, uh, to stopping people getting seriously sick, because hospital is obviously by far the most expensive 
also quite a dangerous place to be. So if you can stop people getting there through early diagnosis, through tackling things like obesity, smoking, that's definitely a good thing. Problem is, in what he's saying today, at least, there's nothing, for example, on social care, which is one of the big problems with um, the NHS, 13,000 people in hospital who don't need to be because there's no care for them, a lot of them in the community. So uh, the, there's a lot of, his diagnosis, I think, is probably right, but I'm not sure he's yet got the scale of the answers that are needed. And also, if you really start shifting um, care out of hospitals, you have to think, do we have too many hospitals? Are they the wrong kind of hospitals? So I was in Denmark a couple of weeks ago, they've gone from 78 to 21 hospitals because they've shifted so much of care out of um, those kind of most serious um, places. Can you imagine if that happened here, two-thirds of hospitals shutting? It'd be an absolute outcry, wouldn't there? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Libby, what, what do you make of this? Is it is it, it, The Labour Party setting lots of targets for the NHS might be the right thing to do, but I'm not sure it's going to set pulses racing. Well, I, I've always mistrusted target talk. I'm, I'm much more animated when I hear about detailed plans and detailed costings. And I think this business of suicide prevention is a problematic kind of promise. It would be better to talk about mental illness treatment and mental health provision in general and to talk of it in terms of costings, in terms of what we have to give up in order to have it. Um, I, I don't like the target thing. It just sounds as if people are saying, this is, well, look how high our target is, therefore we achieve things. And most targets are never achieved. Um, and uh, the, the, the sort of conservative criticism of this, Libby, is, well, look at what's happening in Wales, where some waiting lists are longer than they are in England. Well, yes, <laughs> there you are. You see, targets do not get met, and talking of them is, is not an answer. I want costings. I want details. I want administrative plans. And, of course, they never dare do it because of the sense that people will shout socialism, Corbynism, class war, all that, uh, you know, or uh, fret about taxes. I mean, I, I really, I, I just don't like these, these general promises. They don't, they don't cut through, as the phrase is to me. And Rachel, when you've been doing the, the Times Health Commission and, and, and uh, you know, obviously the fact it's devolved and different things happen in different parts of the country and different people in charge, but the same problems seem to to cut across um, regardless of where it's happening. So you've got Keir Starmer saying he's going to fix the NHS in, in England, but actually Labour in Wales face all the same problems, a lack of staff, an ageing population, uh, social care, bed blocking, waiting lists, it's all still the same issues. Yeah, it's the same problem all over the world, actually. So I was in Israel last week. It's the same issue, ageing population, staff shortages, uh, rising costs. But what they're doing there is they're using technology to completely rethink and reinvent the whole system. So you have to think, you know, it's no good actually just chucking more money at things or having targets for this, such other. You've got to think, how are we going to reshape the system so that it can deal with these greater pressures? It's not going to work just by tweaking around the edges, which Starmer and Wes Streeting do talk about, at least. I think they do have a, the sort of scale of ambition rhetorically, um, and Streeting is definitely a reformer. Uh, and we heard from George Osborne recently, who made the point that actually it's almost easier for Labour to be radical on the NHS than the Conservatives, because the Tories are so nervous of being seen to do anything that could undermine the NHS that they end up being even more cautious. Uh, so I think Labour needs to be brave on it and change really kind of upend it and think radically about how to um, reinvent the system to, for this new age. 
Oh, well, we're interested to see how uh, uh, what impact these have and whether or not anybody notices Keir Starmer's missions over... Take a wish it's soon like a while for anyone to notice his five pledges. Um, let's move on. I want to ask you about another story. Uh, Libby, with your, your theatre critic hat on. This story about a performance of Tambo and Bones at the Theatre Royal Stratford East in East London. Uh, having a, a, what's it called, a blackout event where white customers or uh, um, white people are asked not to go to the performance on July the 5th so the audience can enjoy it free from the white gaze. This was um, Remy Adekoya, who's the author of It's Not About Whiteness, It's About Wealth. Uh, also politics lecturer at the University of York. Spoke to Times Radio a bit earlier. Look, on the one count, I understand the psychological appeal of black people wanting to go to an event where, you know, race issues are discussed and it's an all-black audience which is there. What does this speak to? This speaks to a certain black fragility. So just as we speak of white fragility and say there's certain issues around race which, race which white people are uncomfortable discussing, the same goes for black people. There are certain aspects of race which black people are uncomfortable discussing once white people are in the room and, you know... Uh, Libby, what do you what do you think of this? I don't know if you've come across this before in your your theatre critic um, uh, travels. There's there's been talk of it once or twice. Remember, this is only one night, one particular night of, of I think that the show is going on. I my immediate instinct is that it's it's a kind of of racism, and I just don't like it. It makes me feel uncomfortable, um, fragile, if you like, whatever. And I think if I was black, I think it would make me feel fragile as well. The idea that having white people in a room was somehow, you know, would make you unhappy and miserable. Um, on the other hand, uh, Trevor Phillips has said he thinks it's okay, and I, I tend to think anything he says is is sensible. Um, so, I mean, it's a one-off, and they're now rowing back slightly and saying, of course, white people won't be actually banned at the door or anything. But I was a child in South Africa um, for a short period when my dad was posted there. And any suggestion of whites-only or black-only spaces makes me just shiver uh, miserably. You know, I, I love the mix. I love the London mix. I love the theatre mix. I love it when you're somewhere like the Young Vic, where you really do have a very diverse audience and the atmosphere is just woohoo, you know, everybody together. And I was at the Mandela thing. We were all kind of hugging each other at that show. The black family next to me, and I said, look, I was in South Africa, you know, when Mandela was in prison, you know, as a child, and, and we all had a hug. You know, it, it's, it, it feels excluding. I, it's uncomfortable, as I say, but as I say, if Trevor Phillips says it's okay, it's okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, Rachel, what do you make of this? Well, I think I would just think if this was about a white audience, yeah. everyone would be appalled. So it does, I just think it's a bad idea. You sh shouldn't divide people by race uh, and you shouldn't exclude any particular racial group, black, white, whatever. And, I th you know, I can understand, I think, why they've done it uh, to sort of create a safe space or whatever. But I think if you just think of it being applied differently, we, yeah. it would be horrific. Um, so I really don't think you should go there. It's a sort of slippery slope, really. Right, let's get behind the wheel of the big political story of the day then. And Suella Barverman accused of asking her civil servants to uh, get a, a sort of VIP private uh, um, speed awareness course after she was caught speeding. But as someone who's never been on one, I don't really know anything about it. But luckily, um, well, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester, you, you've, both, you've both been on one, is that right? Yeah, I've been, I've been on so many that I'm not allowed to go on any more. <laughs> um, <laughs> the irony is I'm one of the slowest drivers in the world. I was going to say, Rachel, I'm head. surprised. I I'm, just thought, if anyone is the, is the sort of head girl of Times Radio, we'd never get into any trouble. 
but I'm constantly getting caught going sort of 22 miles an hour in a 20 zone and things like that. But I rather like them because it's actually the most socially diverse place you ever see a speed awareness course. You've got absolutely everyone there, um, apart from it seems a home secretary. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, uh, right. We've also got. We've got Charles. Charles is there. Charles. Charles Cowan. Yes, I'm here. I've been briefly, briefly not in a speed awareness course, but this is nearly as much fun. <laughs> How many have you been on, Giles? Uh, only a couple. I, I, uh, normally, okay, I haven't been on as many as I should have been because I normally get letters saying you can't go on a speed awareness course because you were going too fast. Uh, I, I normally, I'm, if I'm done like doing seventy and a fifty, and they go, oh no, you only go on a speed awareness course if, like Rachel's best, you're doing fifty-five. To which my response is, if you're only doing fifty-five, you don't really need a speed awareness course. I am the kind of loony that needs to have it, you know, uh, yeah, needs Charles, to be retrained. Charles, if you've already been on a speed awareness course, you're not supposed to speed again because you're now more aware of your speed. Well, I, I, I do speed less now, but it's the nine points that if I get done again, I'm finished. I'm also, I can't, like Rachel, I can't have another speed awareness course for a bit. I did one just before lockdown doing 54. It's humiliating to be going so slowly in a 50. And, and then I got done and I had to do a, a, an online one, you know, during, a Zoom one during during COVID. My brief trip out, I was doing like, like Rachel, maybe 25 and a 20. And I had to and I had to do one then. And it, it is it is sort of bonkers that you're only allowed to do a course rather than get a fine for going at a speed which you is safe is when you go too fast they wash their hands of you and i think that's a shame i mean maybe they should do it with some flogging or something the faster you go but yeah, <laughs> it's a strange it's an, a strange anomaly come on then libby as everyone else is fessed up have you been on one of these i've been on two yes um the first one was run by a rac man and it was absolutely brilliant it was so informative about the actual importance of certain limits and certain places it was very good the second one had a couple of rather annoying bossy women in lower stoft um but they're very sociable uh, i mean the thing nobody is saying is what a fool i mean the, the the pr imagine the good pr if the attorney general had simply turned up and said nobody is above the law and sat there among fellow citizens polite listening and saying how useful these courses are and everybody would thought you know Suella she's not that bad she's not as evil as people think um, it would be a brilliant PR coup instead of which she she attempts to opt for a ridiculous embarrassing one-on-one -on -one with some RAC bloke uh, it, it just uh, it, it seems to me the worst PR move anybody's done in Parliament since Matt Hancock. <laughs> so um, our colleague Patrick McGuire has got hold of some WhatsApps. Uh, the Tory MPs in WhatsApp groups are showing their fond memories of their speed awareness course. Uh, Michael yeah. Fabricant says, I've rather enjoyed uh, the non-virtual one. In Staffordshire, you get free tea, cake and lemon drizzle cake. Sweet tea, coffee and lemon drizzle cake. Great camaraderie among us criminals, uh, but it made it clear attendees are anonymous and should not be revealed. Um, and uh, yeah, various others are saying they're enjoying it. So what actually, as someone who's not been to one, Giles, what actually goes on? Really, a chap comes in and stands at the top of the, the class, I'm sure, and, and as Libby says, tells you interesting things and asks questions like, who can tell me what a dual carriageway is? And everyone gets it wrong because it's sort of 30 years since you did your driving test. You can't remember all the things. I think what's bonkers about Braverman is that it's like the whole class being put in detention. Uh, which was always quite fun at school. Oh, everyone's gone to detention. Who cares? It's not that embarrassing to tell you. When it was just you, it was awful <laughs> and dismal. And you have to, for an hour, you have to interact with this bozo telling you about how to drive. If there's lots of you, you sit at the back picking your nose and flirting and having fun and sort of, you know, lemon drizzle cake with Michael Fabricant. What, a, what an advert. For <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, and then but to, to be on your own, absolute nightmare. You've got to be alert and awake for the entire hour. I, 
I suppose I can only, the only thing is, to, to pick up on Rachel's point about the diversity, when I went, it was 90% immigrants. There was a lot of people basically not understanding what the bloke was saying. Some of them had translators with them provided by the council. Some of them asked me, what, what does that mean? They were, as they were almost all immigrants, I can see why Suella Braverman might have not wanted to be there in a room with them, uh, given that her priority is to send them all home. Rachel Sylvester, Libby Purvis and Giles Cohen there. And of course, you can read them all in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is Anna Summer. Unlikable. Insincere. Not likable. A loser. Fraud. I just think he's false. So that won't be awkward at all. Before that, let's talk about the challenge that lies ahead for Labour in Scotland. And it's a big one. Uh, Time Scottish Political Editor Kieran Andrews joins us. Morning, Kieran. Good morning, Matt. And Emily Gray, Managing Director of Ipsos Scotland, the pollster. Hi, Emily. Hi, good morning. Emily, first of all, take us through uh, the numbers. If we go back sort of pre pre 2010 there was a time when it wasn't just that labor dominated scotland but scotland dominated labor you know there was those jokes about are we being run by a scottish mafia there were so many scottish labor mp's around the cabinet table what has happened the ups and downs of labor uh, in scotland yeah absolutely i mean you know the because the the political map of of Scotland used to be red, and then in re, you know in recent years it has been yellow, particularly at the 2015 general election when the SNP saw a, a landslide. But then when you look more recently, Labour are doing better in the wake of Nicola Sturgeon's departure, and of course you know very difficult times for the SNP over funding and finances. So while the SNP are still in front when it comes to how people say that they would vote in an immediate general election. Election, their lead over Labour has narrowed to, to around about six points if you look at the average of the last few polls. Question is now, can they sustain that and improve on it? Because that will not be easy. Um, and in terms of where we are in the numbers, how much of a shift has there been? Is it still the case that the SNP have a decent lead? 
Oh, around about a six-point lead when you look at general election votes. So that is better for Labour than it was earlier in the year when that was hovering around a 10-point lead for the SNP. But I think there are still big challenges for Labour in Scotland, so particularly around Brexit. So Keir Starmer has said that a Labour government under him will not reverse Brexit. And of course, over six in 10 of Scottish voters voted to remain, um, but also on independence, because what you have seen in recent years is a really strong link between supporting independence and supporting the SNP. So most people who would vote yes in an independence referendum also vote SNP. Question is, you know, do we start to see a loosening of that. Um, but certainly when it comes to winning over voters from the SNP, which is what Labour will need to do, actually independence still matters for that group. And uh, Kieran, it, it just take us back to just how dominant Labour were. I was sort of like thinking, you know, just think about this sort of Tony Blair cabinet. So you had Gordon Brown, obviously his chancellor, then John Reid, Robin Cook, Alistair Darling, Derry Irving. Everywhere you looked, there were big, you know, Jim Murphy later on, big political beasts were born out of the Labour movement in Scotland. And now they're down to one MP. The idea that, that, that Kit, uh, Keir Starmer's got to sweep the board there seems over-optimistic. Well, there's a thing about how, when you talk about those big beasts, how they were deployed by Labour, particularly after devolution. There was a criticism that Labour sent its A-team to Westminster and the B-listers to Holyrood, which created two problems. One was um, the perception that Labour saw the Scottish Parliament as um, a second rate, and two, that you know, if, if that's the case, that you've not got your, your top people um, in the Scottish Parliament, then it makes them less credible as, as governments, as administrations, as people to vote for. So then, you know, when, when that falls away, you have to find a way of rebalancing um, the, the Scottish Labour Party. And that's something Nas Sarwar is trying to do just now, mostly um, not through choice, but through circumstance. He, he is trying to build up a team in Holyrood because he only has, as you say, Ian Murray, in Westminster. Interesting, um, nice to come and be able to bring you some breaking news, Matt. It looks like we're a bit closer to potentially Labour having a second MP. Uh, it's emerging that Margaret Ferrier has lost her appeal, the, the MP who travelled the length and breadth of the UK, including go to the House of Commons with COVID, has lost her appeal against the Standards Commissioner. So she's going to get a 30-day suspension from the House, which triggers a recall petition, which could then trigger a by-election in Rutherglen, Hamilton West. Labour have already selected a candidate for that and are pretty confident about winning it from the SNP. And actually, that by-election, as and when it comes, would be quite a big moment. You know, it's only one seat, but if if Labour can win that back, Keir Starmer could say, look, this is, this is just the start. Yes, absolutely. It's about direction of travel, particularly if Labour can win well. Um, then they can say, look, here is the momentum that we are showing in Scotland. Uh, you know, come vote for us. And momentum, as you know very well, momentum is really important going into uh, going into elections. So to win something like that, particularly if they win well, it, it will really give them confidence going to the general election. The flip side is if they don't, if they even if they, they squeak it perhaps, or particularly if the SNP win, then it's really, really problematic for Labour's narrative in Scotland. 
And, and Emily, when we say that there's been a move from from SNP to Labour, how much of that? And I know it's hard to to sort of get under the bonnet off when it's just sort of polling numbers. But how much is that? Is uh, people now warming to Labour, flocking to Labour, liking Keir Starmer and Summer? And how much is it people looking at what's happened in the SNP? They've lost Nicola Sturgeon. They've lost the chief executive Peter Mole, who also seems to be Nicholas Sturgeon's husband. Uh, they've lost their chief spin doctor, various people, you know, the treasurer as well, uh, all the money troubles, the police investigation, so on. And people are just sort of a bit squeamish about the SNP right now. Is it a, a positive move to Labour or a sort of negative move away from the SNP? Well, I mean, certainly Anasawa is the most popular of the Scottish party leaders just now. So, you know, Humza Yousaf is less well received by the public, tends to have, you know, have some negative approval ratings on the on the evidence of recent polls. Um, but being kind of likable doesn't necessarily translate into winning voters over for from, from the SNP. So I think there's a real question mark still around what Labour's distinctive pitch is to Scottish voters, particularly around around the Constitution. Oh, we'll find out in a moment, because we're going to speak to the man himself. Uh, let's, uh, uh, Emily, really good to speak to you. Emily Gray there, Managing Director of Ipsos, Ipsos Scotland, and Kieran Andrews, Times Scottish political editor, uh, joining us on the Zoom with a big pile of copies of his books in the background. I noticed... Uh, very good. Uh, absolutely shameless. Uh, right, very good. Up next, we're going to speak to Labour's uh, leader in Scotland, Anna Sol. We're talking about whether it's up to, uh, up to him to get Keir Starmer into Downing Street. And why did our focus group say this about him? Dentist? I have no idea what his actual ideas are. Well, let's speak to uh, the man himself now, the Scottish Labour leader, Anna Sol. joins me now. Morning, Anna. Morning, Matt. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. It's nice to have you with us. Now, it used to be said that a donkey wearing a red rosette could get elected uh, in uh, for Labour in Scotland. That must seem like a distant memory now. Well, I think I was probably younger than a teenager then when that was being said. Um, I think it's pretty safe to say uh, through most of my adult life, Labour has uh, struggled in Scotland, but uh, look, we're on the way back, but we're not complacent. Uh, we've got lots of work to do. Uh, we've made huge progress in the last two years, but I want us to motor on in the next 18 months as we head towards the next general election. I mean, you and I are about the same age, Alice. Um, there was a time when you looked around the, the, the Tony Blair's cabinet table. It was, it was full of uh, Scottish uh, MPs, uh, big beasts, we used to call them. Whose fault is it that that's just not the case now, that you've gone from a cabinet dominated by Scots to just having one MP in Scotland? Look, I've never had the, a view where you, you blame the public. I think you've got to take the blame yourself. And the reality is the reason why Labour lost elections is because we deserve to lose and we weren't good enough. And I think over the course of the last two years, we've demonstrated that we want to give people a Labour Party that's worthy of the name, that's worthy of their support, worthy of their trust, and we're continuing to do that work. We've made huge strides, as I say. You know, two years ago, we were 32 points behind the SNP. A year ago, we were 17 points behind the SNP. And as you heard from Emily, depending on which poll you, you see, we're between three to seven points behind the SNP. That's still not good enough. That's good progress. It's still not good enough. So we've still got work to do and we're determined to do that work. Uh, with gains uh, in Scotland in the general election, the idea of a possible Commons majority is at least being talked about now for Keir Starmer. Um, without big gains in Scotland, that looks really hard. Do you, do you feel the pressure of that? Is it all on you? Well, I, I feel the excitement of it rather than the pressure of it, um, and I, I relish the challenge. Yeah, I, I, I think we will get a majority Labour government, but I do honestly believe that that majority will be delivered by Scotland. So there is no route to a Labour government that doesn't go through Scotland. 
and that's why we've got to make significant gains in Scotland, we've got to make significant wins in Scotland. But I think it's also important to say it's not just about winning seats in Scotland so we can have a UK Labour government. It's important that we win seats in Scotland so we have a UK Labour government that's delivering for Scotland. And that's something that Kira and I are both relentlessly going to pursue between now and the next general election is to persuade people, of course, that the Tories deserve to lose, of course, that the SNP deserve to lose, but also with a positive, hopeful message about why Labour deserves to win so we can strengthen our economy, we can rebuild our public services, we bring integrity and decency back to public life. These are all big issues that matter to people right across the UK, but also matter to people here in Scotland. Um, what's the figure that you need if the, if the major, part of the majority lies uh, through uh, Scotland? How many seats do you need in Scotland to deliver that majority? Well, I want, I want us to deliver more than our Barnet consequential, to put it that way, in terms of the gains we need to make in order to win a majority across the country. I'm not going to put a figure on it, but I think if you look at... You must know a figure, though. And, you must know how many seats yeah. you need to win. We need to win a significant number of seats, but I, I actually think it all depends on the share of the vote that we can get in Scotland. And, you know, it's different psychologists have given different uh, ratings. I think right now, if you're in a... If you're polling around 31%, you're said to be competitive in 12 to 15 seats. I want us to be doing even more than that. And I think with every percentage you put on, it's said that we are more competitive in another three seats. So, look, I want us to really motor on. I'm not going to set an arbitrary target. I want us to persuade as many people as possible to think about voting Labour, to actually vote Labour, so we can then get a significant number of seats in Scotland. That's, that's what my target is, to persuade a number of people rather than setting a hard target on the number of seats. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about then, about the effort to persuade those people. Uh, we do a focus group every month here on Times Radio. And uh, last month, we uh, spoke to specifically a group of people from across Scotland who'd backed the SNP in 2019, but are now undecided. So they are your sort of target group. Used to be SNP, uh, now they're, they're willing to look elsewhere. So uh, if this isn't too awkward, uh, let's take a listen to what they had to say about you, Alice. Dentist? I think that was his job before he was a politician, but that's the first thing that comes into my mind. I don't like him at all. It's just SNP that's SNP that. He's just, oh, he's just, I just don't like Scrapper. Unlikable. Insincere. Not likable. A loser. Fraud. I just think he's false. It just opposes the SNP. I have no idea what his actual ideas are. Well, it's good they know you used to be a dentist. I like the fact that you did a focus group with my kids. I mean, that's pretty, uh, pretty... You see you see the challenge I face in my home every single day, Matt, you know? Uh, look, look, you've got to take all these things with uh, with a pinch of salt. I, you know, I heard Emily very kindly referencing the polls where uh, my approval ratings are uh, the most popular of any of the party leaders in Scotland, but I don't take that, you know, for granted. I've still got work to do. Uh, and as I say, I'm, I might not persuade all of those individuals. I'm not sure, having listened to the focus group, that those necessarily are our target voters come the either the next general election or the next Scottish Parliament election. But you're right to say that we do need to persuade people that formerly voted for the SNP eh, to vote Labour come the next general election. And I think the way we do that is, first and foremost, is and this is partly on the UK party, but also on the Scottish party, we've got to demonstrate that Labour can win the next general election. I think we are starting to persuade people that Labour can win the next general election. Um, secondly, uh, alongside demonstrating we can win, is demonstrating that we can get rid of this rotten Tory government, that this isn't the United Kingdom that we can have. Uh, and then the third part is, how do we set out what that positive alternative is? And that, for me, has to focus around two big areas. One around 
the economy and uh, how we grow our economy, how we maximise the opportunities around the green revolution, how we strengthen, for example, our um, you know financial services industry, our tech industry, but also how we sell brand Scotland to the rest of the UK and the rest of the world. And the second part has to be a plan for our NHS, which is really struggling in Scotland like it is struggling in other parts of the country. Now, that might not be automatically delivered come a UK general election, but that's going to be a massive feature come the Scottish Parliament election in 2026 because obviously health is devolved in Scotland. Yeah, yeah. But that, for me, are the two big issues that we've got to go out there and meet people on. We've already set out some ideas on that, but we've still got work to do and we're looking forward to making that case. Oh, well, you talk about the, sort of the, the difference between you know, what you're doing and the, and the National Party. Just to make you feel slightly better, let's have a listen to what the focus group had to say about your, your, your national boss, Keir Stubber. Let's take a listen. Spineless. Doesn't get his point across enough. Bland. Cowardly. Bogus. <laughs> Meh. <laughs> Bogus mental. Bland. He shouldn't be a politician, he's just... Because he is bland. Kind of just sums up Labour, really. There's there's not that much of a fight against the Tories. I just always felt like he was in the background, gibbering on, but nothing that actually made sense or meant anything. Wish-washy for me. Just not doing enough, basically, to, to make people listen. I think he's passive. I think he had arguably the best chance of, of any Labour leader with the mistakes that Boris Johnson was making and the Tory party have made over the last couple of years and he smashed the ball over the bar from two yards. Some of the things he says about Scotland are derogatory. He's out of touch with Scottish politics, Scottish people. He seems like he would be terrible for, for Scotland and most probably England as well. What worries me is he changes his mind and that's why I keep bogus because... You know, he's, he'll say something and then he'll change it. Um, Anasawa, is it a problem that, that, that ordinary voters like that, people you actually you do want to try and persuade to vote for you, have picked up on this fact that Keir Starmer seems to change his mind a lot? Well, look, I, look, I don't think, again, I, I, would genuinely, I would genuinely say I'm not sure that the, the people that you chose for that focus group are representative of who the Swiss voters are come the next uh, Scottish election, I think. I think Scotland is probably in... In, you know, in thirds, I think there's a third of the electorate that is ardently pro-independence, wants independence tomorrow, will always vote for a pro-independence party. I think a third of the country is probably ardently pro-UK, ardently unionist, never wants a referendum again. And I think you've probably got another third of the country that are probably um, soft yes or soft no. And those are the people I think are the persuadable come the election around actually we want change but what does that change actually mean in practice and I think you know for all the criticism Keir Starmer gets it's a typical thing in the Labour Party we don't give people credit for the good things but we want to be highly critical and look I can say I can say this from experience being a leader of a political party is a huge challenge because everyone always believes they're a political strategist they always want to tell you how you can be doing it differently and better but ultimately you're the one that's got to make the decision and set that strategy and I think credit to Keir Starmer if you look at where we were as a political party when he became the leader, I think about it when, in terms of when I became leader of the Scottish Labour Party and where he's got to us now, he is the first person that would say, I've managed to get the Labour Party credible again. I've managed to stabilise the ship. I've managed to change the Labour Party. I've managed to persuade people that the government needs to change. But I've still got work to do to demonstrate people why we deserve to win. And I'm acutely aware of that. He's acutely aware of that. We've got to now set out over the course of the next 12 to 18 months why Labour deserves to win. And I'm really, really confident that we will do that. And I'm confident the outcome of that will be people supporting Labour and us delivering a UK-wide Labour government. I think the other point to stress is, for all the criticism of Keir Starmer, 
Keir Starmer still has a more positive approval rating in Scotland than Hamza Yusuf does as the first minister and leader of the SNP. I think that should worry the SNP rather than uh, thinking about Keir Starmer and obsessing about Keir Starmer. Um, just on on that, that that point about um, uh, what Keir Starmer has done to to move the party on, a couple of weeks ago he gave an interview to the Times where he, he used the examples of what he'd done with Jeremy Corbyn, removing him from the party, you know, getting the party back in shape. Uh, another thing that he talked about was how he'd removed Richard Leonard uh, as Scottish Labour leader, your your predecessor for underperforming. Um, does that does that keep you on your toes, knowing that at any moment Keir Starmer could sweep in and and ask you to 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 go as well? Well, look, I don't, I don't accept that. And look, I, I think Richard Leonard has been uh, an incredible uh, colleague since um, he vacated the leadership. He's done a great job as a, a member of our group. He's doing a great job as the chair of the uh, Public Audit Committee uh, in Scotland. And, uh, and look, I'm not going to get into the ins and outs of, of that relationship. Uh, both of those individuals can, can make their own case around how that relationship was. Uh, the key point for me is is that I think people can see that we have a distinct Scottish Labour Party. I think people can see uh, that I have uh, moved our political party in Scotland uh, to a more credible, more likeable place. My challenge now is to turn that credibility and likeability into electability, and that means persuading people about why it's a positive to vote Labour. I've got a really strong relationship uh, with Keir. Uh, we have a very open and frank dialogue. Uh, we both work together. When it's in our interest, but of course we have different opinions on individual issues. That is to be expected, and that's right. But we respect each other in that. And Keir knows. Keir knows that we need to make significant gains in Scotland to help him be prime minister. But he also knows that, as well as me wanting him to be prime minister, I want us to compete and win the election in twenty twenty six. And so yeah. I've got to do what's right for Scotland and what's right for the Scottish Labour Party. Um, last week I spoke to Andy Burnham, Labour Mayor of Greater Manchester. Uh, he was quite cross that the team Starmer seemed to keep briefing against him, telling telling them, leave me alone. And he said he hadn't spoken to, to Keir Starmer since February. How how would you how was, how was your relationship with Keir Starmer? How, when was the last time you spoke to him? Uh, I spoke to Keir a couple of weeks ago. He's actually in Scotland uh, this week. Uh, we, we speak regularly. Um, about lots of matters. Our, our teams work very closely together. Uh, we're fully aligned when it comes to uh, election strategy planning, when it comes to policy development planning for the next manifesto as it relates to uh, Scotland uh, in terms of our common strategy coming the next election. Our teams are working really well together. Uh, really robust views, really strong views, but ultimately we are united by the mission to, to win and the mission to change this country. And, and that united collective approach to winning I think helps us form a good a good basis for a strong relationship. Um, is is your job the sort of um, the worst of all worlds? Because if, if Keir Starmer wins lots of MPs in Scotland, he'll get the credit for it, uh, and if he doesn't, you'll be blamed for it. <laughs> Look, I, I'm I'm more than happy to. What, what do they say? Success is many failures, an orphan, and success yeah. is many parents. Yeah. Uh, I think that I think that's the saying. I, I think people can see that we're making significant progress in Scotland. I think we will make significant gains in Scotland. And to be honest, I'm happy to share the credit and I'm also happy <laughs> uh, to take responsibility and take the blame for bad things as well because ultimately I'm more interested in getting the right outcome because it helps people in Scotland rather than individual politicians, individual highs or lows on any individual day. And when you're talking and you're having these robust conversations with Keir I mean, clearly, you know, you've got two very different jobs. You're the leader of uh, Labour in Scotland. He's the leader of uh, Labour nationally. Give us an example of somewhere where you have different priorities or differences of opinion. 
Well, look, I think one of the things that often gets talked about is around, you know, the, the battle for, for left or centre politics. I think one different, uh, you know, thing that we need to think about in Scotland and, and they perhaps don't need to think about it, and they really don't need to think about it, particularly in large parts of, of England, is there is not a left of centre. There's no political party in England that pretends to wear Labour Party's clothes and pretends it's an alternative Labour Party. That's different in Scotland, mm. where the SNP for a very long period, particularly under Nicola Sturgeon's leadership, you know, wanted to pretend they were the Labour Party in Scotland with a salt tab, and actually that wasn't correct. But we have a different competition in that sense, in terms of that left or centre ground. That's a very different place uh, where the Labour Party is, for example, in England uh, and and in Wales. So that's a, obviously a different kind of consideration for us when it comes to our own messaging, our own policy development, and the own our own challenges come swing voters, etc. And in, in in any individual election, sounds like you've got it tougher. Who's got the hardest job? York here. Oh look, uh, he, he's he, he's got a tough job. I mean, we we were coming from third place. I think um, we might have had a really really uh, difficult result across the general election in twenty nineteen. But Cure's going from second to first. Uh, we've got a tough job in terms of trying to go from third to first. <laughs> uh, but I'm more than happy. I'm more than happy for us to take the first test to make him prime minister, <laughs> and then we can all get but we can all get behind trying to get a Labour first minister in Scotland as well. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Do get in touch with any comments, criticisms, or just lavish praise. You can email me Matt at times.radio. Uh, but for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Hold up. 